the unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I've come to receive and hold it within my sight and hearing, I bow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Shifu Shangren, Gawei Shishung, Dajia Omi Tofo, Venerable Master, Friends in the Dharma, welcome to our Sutra lecture tonight. Um, we're here at the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery, and it's Saturday night, August 28th, and tonight we're going to be looking into the Ten Grounds chapter of the Flower Adornment Sutra, the Shi Di Ping, Huayanjing Shi Di Ping. And we're on the second ground, which is, uh, we're just beginning. So you've come tonight right at the right time to uh, hear about um, the Bodhisattva's practice of understanding good and evil and how to uh, connect one's behavior every day with principle, with true principle, how to make the things we do every day um, The word is graft. If you're a gardener, you know about grafting. You graft your behavior onto the trunk of the universe. If you can imagine how that would be. You become a branch of, of uh, the stream of traditional wisdom. So it flows through your every deed, every word and every thought. So how marvelous a thing to do. That's what the sutra is about. And let's see if we can make sense of it tonight. Put our, put our efforts together. Now, uh, in order to do that, the first thing we do is we invoke spiritual presence. And that is, that's the title of our text, which is right here. We're going to chant it in Chinese, which is down below here. So I'd like to invite you to join me in doing that, if you care to. Namo
following uh, tonight's investigation of the sutra, we have an important message from a uh, someone who's concerned about us, who thought it was time to come and give us a pep talk. So, Grandpa Yeye will be speaking to you later. And we also have uh, an incredible story coming up. True story. Please turn in your text to page 4, page 4 and page 5. Tisu ye diwu ye. We're on the... Um, the paragraph at the, in the middle of the page that begins are Shi Jingang Zang Pusa. At that time, Bajra Treasure. Uh, we're going to go all the way down to the end of that paragraph, kind of a long paragraph. So I'm going to put my palms together. You're welcome to join me if you care to do so. Are Shi Jingang Zang Pusa. Gao 所谓正直心广心大心菩萨以此实心菩萨以此实心得入第二离垢地得入第二离垢地 Alright, uh, let's look at the English now. At that time, Vajra Treasury Bodhisattva addressed Moon of Liberation Bodhisattva and said, Disciples of the Buddha, the Bodhisattva Mahasattva, who is already accomplished in the first ground, and who wishes to enter the second ground, should cultivate ten profound states of mind. What are the ten states of mind? They are a mind proper and upright. A mind compliant and yielding. A mind able to endure. A mind tamed and subdued. A mind a still and quiet mind. A completely good mind. A mind free of confusion. A mind free of regret. A mind, oh, I'm sorry, an expansive mind and a big mind. 
the bodhisattva, the bodhisattva through the, those ten states of mind, reaches the second ground, leaving the dust behind. Okay, we've actually started now. All the preparations are in place, and the uh, the request has been made. Moon of Liberation, Bodhisattva Jyotoya, who's the the uh, the official name for him in literature is the interlocutor. He's the one who starts the conversation. He's made his request, and uh, Vajra Treasury Bodhisattva has agreed to to talk about it, and. He, uh, he's made his first sound. He's opened his mouth and spoken. At that time, Vajra Treasury Bodhisattva answered Moon of Liberation Bodhisattva and said, Disciples of the Buddha. Now, in Disciples of the Buddha, you have to know there's no male and female. Uh, you could say there's no past or present. He's talking to us. He's talking to the people in the in the assembly. At the time, this was first spoken, and he's, uh, he's talking to all different kinds of beings. And the, um, when you get a, an artist's conception of the audience of these sutra lectures, it's always outstanding. Um, when they try for realism, there are these noble bodhisattva-looking people. There are Buddhas, certainly, first. Then there are bodhisattvas. With, they usually have halos, and they look radiant and they're, they're really dressed in finery. They have incredible gowns on and, and we'd say jewelry but it's decorations and uh, beads and pearls and necklaces and bracelets. And uh, Then if, the ca- if this were a movie the camera would pan and you would see on all sides in the air there are davids. They're flying around and this davids we have an image here in our, in our Buddha hall here you get a sense of these Beings who fly, they are, they live in the air, in the sky. They're not terrestrial, they're not earthbound. Those beings are there by great numbers and they have this fabric flapping behind them and they, they seem to defy physics but yet they're very graceful. Uh, then there are, on down, there are humans and they come in all descriptions, all colors, all ages and genders. Then there are the spiritual beings, like the, there are animals, and there are like dragons, for example. There are uh, mm, yakshas and, and rakshashas, and those are, nobody can hide it, they're ghosts and demons. And you think, what are they doing there? Um, story goes that, that uh, the Buddha is not limited to teaching humans, especially not just male humans, especially not just white male humans, right? The Buddha teaches everybody. And uh, his, for example, just to give, to put some flesh and blood on that, the, uh, the fastest disciple to actually get enlightened on the spot as the Buddha spoke the Dharma was a girl and it wasn't a human, it was a dragon. So all of you are going, Saturday night I'm hearing about dragons in downtown Berkeley. Right, you are indeed. Uh, because this is, the, uh, this is a tradition that is spiritually awake. 
the Mahayana Buddha Dharma is not a Protestant tradition that takes all the the uh, the, the blood and the breath and the uh, um, chaos of nature doesn't strip it out. Mahayana Buddha Dharma gives us nature the way a forest gives us nature, which is uh, old trees underneath new trees, new trees growing out of old trees, all of them growing out of decayed matter that goes back to the beginning of the planet. And the animals are there, and the insects are there, and the reptiles are there, and the humans are there too, but they're not the most important. And it's not necessarily a, word, a, a tradition entirely bound up in words. That's interesting too. Um, the Protestant tradition that I grew up in is based on logos. And logos is the word, and not only the word, but the specific word spoken at one time by that particular prophet. Mighty good. That word saves people. But that's one way to look at it. The, the Mahayana tradition that we're, we're hearing from is the word is there, but it's got to take its place in the whole uh, fabric of life entirely. So it's an interconnected, interdependent, multi-layered, multi-ethnic, multi-species picture. And humanity is one part of it, but not the most important part by any means. It, it's, we have to learn how to knit ourselves back into the bigger picture gracefully. If we don't, we will perish. That's, that's for sure. So that's the Mahayana. And these spiritual beings, back to the spiritual beings that I was describing, the story goes that they, each in their realm, are the, the, the baddies. They're, they're the the heavies in the neighborhood. They're the ones who uh, do anything they want. They walk the way they want. They throw their weight around and you have to get out of their way. In every realm, every one of these categories, they're called the gods, the dragons, and the eightfold division, Tian Long Babu. All these different divisions of spiritual beings have their bosses, their heavies. And nobody could could subdue them because each in their own realm were the toughest ones. You know who I'm talking about, the ones who climb to the top, climb over you if need be to get to the top. And each of them, uh, the way our sutra describes us, has a spiritual nature. They're all in touch with their spiritual nature. They're not just villains or, or baddies. They're not the, the black hats. These are spiritual beings who... Uh, also recognize they're not free. They seek liberation. And when they met the Buddha, they met somebody they wanted to be like. And so one by one by one, the Buddha subdued them all. They would come up and challenge him, and the Buddha would just, don't even try it. you know. But he would do it with kindness. And they would see they couldn't scare him, they couldn't entice him, tempt him or subdue, seduce him and it was much better to get along with the program and learn from him. So one by one these assemblies all gathered to hear what the Buddha had to say because he was the baddest one of all and the kindest at the same time. So that's where this group came from and uh, 
There are, the names are Yakshas, Rakshashas, Garudas, Kinaras, Maharagas. Uh, did I leave out the, the Gandharvas? Um, these are all these different categories of beings who are there listening to the Buddha. So, as I say, if we had a, a cinematic uh, the camera pulled back and showed us the Buddha surrounded by who's listening, you'd see all these different categories of beings all looking kind of terrifying in their own right, but they're willing to sit still and be subdued as long as the Buddha is speaking because they all want to hear what he has to say. So, that's who's there. Disciples of the Buddha includes all those kinds of beings. Disciples of the Buddha says, Vajra Treasury Bodhisattva, the Bodhisattva Mahasattva who's already accomplished in the first ground, who has learned everything that was taught in the first chunk of our chapter and who wishes to enter the second ground should cultivate ten profound states of mind. And this is one of those times when we get the number ten. Um, that is really significant in the Flower Adornment Sutra. There are tens of things, lists of ten. There are ten of this, ten of that. The reason being ten represents completion totality and there are people who call the Avatamsaka Sutra the teaching of totality um, you have a one and a zero you've already gone from one through nine back to start it over again with number ten and so the sutra is, is characterized by lists of ten, you always get tens of things that's just one of the features of this text so the bodhisattva who wants to take the next step on the path needs to, what does it say? Cultivate. Says, Dang qi shi zhong shen xin should cultivate ten kinds of xin. Um, as we were working on trying to make this text come alive in English, um, what does it mean? Dang qi xin that's the Chinese. It's on in our paragraph tonight. It's, it it starts out that third line. Dang qi shi zhong shen xin should literally lift up ten kinds of shen profound xin attitude, thoughts, minds, states of mind. So we translate it as should cultivate ten profound states of mind. Um, we worked on this because this is how the sutra starts and it says if you want to, to do what this bodhisattva does you have to put your mind in the right place you've got to think of it like a garden if you're a gardener maybe some of you are gardeners if you want a garden you don't just go out the back steps and toss the seeds if you do that you might catch a couple of them, but most of them will dry up and blow away. They won't take root. They won't bear any fruit. What do you have to do if you want those same seeds to produce a harvest in two months, three months, however, when, when they're due? You have to prepare the ground. Right? Got to go out, plow it, rototiller it, hoe it, and then break up the big chunks into little chunks, break up the little chunks into fine chunks, 
you have to add what are called amendments to the soil, compost, maybe some potassium, maybe some ash, and you have to water it to get it ready. And if you've got one of those kinds of yards, you've got to get rid of the broken glass and the tires and the, the boards and the star thistle and really work on it. Then you toss the seeds out and they take and they grow. So the mind is the very same way. If you want to absorb the teaching of the second ground, you have to prepare the mind. And this is a list of ten things the Bodhisattva says will get you ready to hear the dharmas of the second ground. So here's this list. Very interesting. The way this is uh, the, the tilling of the ground. This is the, the gardening of the mind to get ready to grow the crops of the second ground. Now I should tell you that this is a pattern. Each one of the grounds has a separate list of ten. A different list of ten, ten, ten shin. And these are shun shin, these are profound attitudes. So here we were um, thinking, what does it mean to dang qi? You should qi, lift up. We don't think of lifting up a thought. You, you could if you visualize thoughts coming out of your mind from like below and coming into your consciousness. What do we say? What do we say in English? We say, um, mm, hold these thoughts in mind. Keep them in mind. We say, think these thoughts. You should think these thoughts. But it's not just a thought. So we have verb and object. You've got to hold the thought in mind. You gotta, what is the thing you're trying to hold in mind? Well, let's get to the verb first. You've got to harbor, foster, what else do you do to thoughts or things in mind? Cherish these thoughts. You have to nurture these thoughts. What do we cook, right? If you use cooking metaphor, you've got to cook these thoughts. If they're still raw, you're not going to digest them. You have to really chew, you have to chew these thoughts, right? Swallow these thoughts, digest these thoughts. Those are all okay for what the sutra is telling us. You have to absorb these thoughts or hang on to these thoughts. That's what the Bodhisattva is telling us. If you want to enter the second ground, you have to qi in Chinese, which we pick the word cultivate because it's got a metaphor. It's got the idea of, of gardening, right, which we can relate to. Uh, it's also a word that we use in our, in our daily kind of working with practice, with Buddhist practice. Okay, what is the thing that you got to cultivate? It says, Xin. That's, everybody check that word out. Dang qi, shi zhong shan xin. If you look at our paragraph in Chinese, it's one, two, three. It's the third line, and it's the one, two, three, four, five, sixth word. If you look for xin there in your text, dang qi, shi zhong shen xin. Right above that word xin is the period. So go slightly to your left and you'll see the word xin. It's a picture of a heart, the actual beating heart muscle with the chambers and the aorta and the vena cava and the, the, uh, the, the 
what the, the, the arteries bring the blood to it and the veins take the blood away from it. There's red blood and blue blood, right? So that's a picture. That's one of the, the they say something like 18% of the Chinese, character, Chinese language holds on to the pictures. The other 82, uh, 82% is by sound. But there is a certain number of Chinese pictograms that keep their original picture. And that's one of them. Xin is a picture of the heart. Now, it doesn't mean you should cultivate ten kinds of hearts. That would make you a freak, right? If you had two, you'd be in trouble. One is plenty. If you're actually talking about the organ. So what do we do with this? Well, you have to ask, what do the Chinese mean when they, they use the word xin? What does it mean? What is a xin that you need to cultivate? or nurture, or cherish. Um, we do have words in English that correspond to it. It's closer to attitude. You could also say orientation. A profound orientation. You could say state of mind. That's what we're talking about. What's your state of mind? Well, I'm kind of depressed. Well, I've been really feeling buoyant these days. Well, I've been feeling kind of down. You know, well, I've been feeling really kind of courageous since that happened to me. Right? We have these states of mind. What's another one? Perspective. Keep perspective as you look into this. What would a perspective be? Suppose you're a scientist and you're uh, working on new material. Your perspective should be one of cautious uh, curiosity, right? Or if you're a lawyer and you're taking on a case, you have to keep a positive and, uh, what would you say, um, mm, attentive attitude to any details that may prompt a connection with a precedent you've heard before. So, these are attitudes, right? What else? Directions. Profound directions for your thinking. Um, a state of mind that's absorbed in. You should absorb your mind in what these ten things are. Okay? So you see what's, what's going on here? The Bodhisattva, our Vajra Treasury Bodhisattva saying, okay, you want to enter the second ground? I want you to put your mind here because I'm about to tell you things that if you do that, we'll connect, we'll communicate. You'll know what I'm talking about if you can keep these attitudes in mind. So that's where we are, Dang Qi. Ten kinds of profound, Shen meaning not frivolous, not careless. We're not just curious about it. We need a commitment here, says the Bodhisattva. If you want to get what I'm telling you, you've got to commit to this way of looking. Otherwise, you won't get it. Okay? So, that's the, the framework. Now, let's take a look. What are they? Start with the ten. What are those ten? What are those ten profound attitudes that you've got to kind of mm, set your mind to? The first is always the key of the ten. Like the other nine help to define it, 
The first one is zheng zhi in Chinese. Zheng zhi. Zheng zhi. Zheng is, um, if you look at the character, it's Z-H-E and G. If you look at Xin that we had, and then you go Hudang Wei Shi So Wei Zheng Zhi, that character Zheng doesn't shake. That's a stable character. Character Zheng is like it's like a pyramid. It's not going to bounce. It doesn't wiggle. Right? Zheng is fully, thoroughly square, and it's so standard. Zheng is like the standard, and you know how. Uh, Westerners, if you want to count to five and you do it visually, we usually do this. We go one, two, three, four, slant to do five, right? You want to get five, you're, you're doing like you're counting straws. You know, you got to count 40 straws. So you go one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, like that. In Chinese, you go one, two, three, four, five, junk. Do the character junk because it's standard. You go one, two, three, four, five. And if you have four, you're missing the bottom because you only came out, you came out one short. So you've got jung, jung, jung without the bottom stroke. So it's, that's 24. Okay. Jung is a word for standard. It's a word that means stable, not going to move, not going to shake, not going to wobble. And jung, often translated proper, but it means like there to stay. Okay, so you need a mind that is proper and zhi, this zhi, second tone here, means straight, direct, not devious, not crooked, not hidden. Zhi means takes the shortest route to get there, not single wasted motion. So zheng, zhi, together, is a profound attitude that is square, stable, solid, standard, unmoving. That's the mind that you need if you're going to get to second ground. Okay? That's number one. You need a zheng zhixin. Okay? That's good. So it's not tricky. It's not hip. It's not in for the ride, along for the ride kind of might jump out if something better comes along, right? Like, no, I'm going to jump. It's the mind that you enter into a, when you buy your house. That's kind of, you're talking to the bank executive, the bank officer, and you're, you know, you're putting down that down payment. You plan to stay there. You need to keep it. You hope the bank has the same attitude. Turns out, <laughs> you really know how to hit an audience. We, you know, before 2008, if I had said that, you all would have gone, yeah, that's right, banks are like that, you know. Now we know, oh, banks, not necessarily like that. Banks are often speculative, you know. So that's the first mind. What's next? Surprise. Ro-ran. Ro-ran. What is ro-ran? And here is ro-ran. You ready? Look, this is ro-ran. Look at how... Rose petals are completely, if I squeeze this, I wouldn't, but you can see, is that stiff and hard? What could be softer, more pliant than a rose, right? Rose. It's just soft. 
The Bodhisattva's heart, as he enters the second ground, has to be stable as a bank, parentheses, ought to be. Second, it's got to be soft, completely pliant, so that you go poke, poke, and it doesn't resist. Rauran. Doesn't mean no shape, but it means it can have consistency, but it's not stiff. It's pliant. Water is Rauran. If you think, how soft is water? Well, you say, as ice, it's the hardest thing. Think iceberg, right? Well, that's a different kind of water. That's the hard water. We want the soft water. So, can you have a mind, an attitude, a state of mind that is Rauran? If so, you're ready for the second ground. Number three, what is it? Kan Nung. Kan Nung says, capable. Mind that is capable. By which I interpret the, um, the Bodhisattva on the second ground is not um, a sky pilot. You all know what a sky pilot is? Often, um, in a world where everybody's got to get a job, religious people seem like sky pilots. I've been called sky pilot a lot. You know, Get up from there. Get a job. Don't just sit there. Do something. And the Buddhists say, don't just do something. Sit there. So, what's wrong with being a sky pilot? Well, I have met in Buddhism some sky pilots, and it's not a bodhisattva. This is interesting because this is a religious spiritual text, and the idea is you've got to be capable. To be a bodhisattva, you have to be kannam. Somebody who is kannam can handle stuff, prepared, doesn't panic. You can't panic because the Buddha Dharma is there for when things go wrong. Think about the Buddha's life before he woke up. Those six years in the mountains, most everything went wrong. Right? Think about that. The Buddha, as he was the prince before he became the Buddha, was well acquainted with failure. Big fail. Epic fail. Over and over to the point where he almost died when he tried to starve himself into ending desire. He didn't succeed, didn't get it right, but he kept at it because he was capable. So it's, it's kind of the opposite. If you think, oh, my son is a Buddhist, means basically a parasite in the stereotype, right? Parasite. Buddhist monk, what could be more useless? In Thailand, after the tsunami, ask anybody who was there, it was the Buddhists who piled up the bloated, stinking corpses and did the hard work of identifying them and getting the word back to their relatives in Sweden that their loved one was here. It was the monks who do the, the ugly work that for them, if their practice is taking effect, is necessary and shouldn't discriminate so much, whether it's a sad corpse or 
a pre-corpse. We're all pre-corpses. We're all alive. We're still breathing, so we are pre-corpses, right? Wait a while, and uh, that sounds morbid, doesn't it? So the bodhisattva, I won't go there tonight. The bodhisattva is kanam, able, able, capable, can do things. Can you imagine a business card? Pre-corpse. How do you do? <laughs> but still breathing. Tiaofu, tiaofu means tamed. How do we translate it? Tamed and subdued. That's, if you think of tamed and subdued, um, everywhere I turn these days, somehow I'm running into horse psychology. It's funny, I don't know why, but I'm running into uh, people who are writing about and talking about and making YouTube videos about the intelligence of horses and how um, horses are spiritual. And There's a, a group in Marin that will allow you, you can do a retreat with a horse and the horses are the stars, right? And the, the teacher knows the horses so well. The teacher's a horse whisperer. And she knows the horses so well that she looks at you after a couple of days and picks out the horse for you, the horse that's going to lead you into, into peace of mind and into uh, oneness with the earth and four-legged creatures. So anyway, I'm running into lots of people. Fascinating, huh? I, I think there's something to it. Anyway, horses have to be broken. And I've never spent much time with horses, but I, I uh, know people who have and, and have always been with people who have. And they talk about the moment when if a horse gets broken, they have a future. If a horse in their adolescence, if they refuse to be broken at a certain point, like, what is it, 18 months or something like that, when a colt becomes a, a, a mature horse, if they're not tamed, they are useless the rest of their lives. I mean, financially worthless as well. Nobody wants to, to feed one. But they're also just their lives, they won't relate to humans. And a skillful uh, horseman, woman, a skillful uh, cowboy will know when is the right time to break that horse to what? Break it sounds terrible. You don't break the horse. You, you give the horse a bridle. You saddle it and ride it. And if a horse refuses to accept it, they will sometimes ship it off to become dog food. Right? So uh, that's an important time. So horses get tiao food. And that tiao is the same word that goes into tuning an instrument. You tune up an instrument with that same word. Tuned. And of course, without the tuning, the instrument makes cacophony, something you don't want to hear. Without 
taming to the saddle and to the bridle, a horse can't be related to as a human. They can be wild, and maybe wild horses certainly have their place. It's not that horses need humans, but human-horse relationships have been a staple of civilization from the beginning, universally. Horses and dogs are two animals that do very well with humanity. Um, They seem to need each other in a real way. There are wild horses and wild dogs. They're wild humans. Some of them masquerade as bankers. Hmm. We won't go there. But um, anyway, that relationship works well when they are Fu. And you could also, what I said about horses, you could say the same about people. There are a lot of uh, 40-year-old adolescents who never get saddle trained, right? Who never wear the bridle. And they, I think prisons are full of them, you know. Uh, mind you, prisons are full of other folks too, but just to say that uh, that moment when you accept the bridle is a time when you become, uh, you could say how sad that you lost some spirit. On the other hand, fire can burn down your house and it can also heat your house if you tame the fire. If you tame people, they can build bridges and roads and pull out splinters when you get one in your foot and they become doctors and they become engineers and moms and dads, right? Show me a dad who isn't tamed, right? A dad who hasn't been tamed to the bridle won't raise any, anybody. Can't be used as a model to ra- raise a kid. So every dad knows the benefit of being Tiaofu and so does mom, you know. So, you get the point. Tiaofu is what you do to wild horses and wild adolescents, wild children, to tame them. Um, It's a skillful teacher who knows how to tame tame the the wild student. And there is a moment in every successful educated person, there is a moment when kids get food, get tamed. I've seen it. I've seen it happen. At City of 10,000 Buddhas, our monastery in Ukiah, we have boys and girls schools. And the, our first lesson for kids coming in at any age, whether they're preschool, kindergarten, elementary, secondary schools, the first lesson is filiality filial respect, xiaoshun. That's the first thing that kids learn without which they won't learn anything else. And it's not a classroom lesson. It's interesting. Um, We have gotten kids every year who come from public schools all over the planet. Hong Kong, Kuala Lumpur, um, Calgary and Vancouver, L.A., San Jose, Ukiah, um, who have avoided the saddle (laughs) so far, right? Nobody's ever saddled them. Nobody's ever given them a bit. And when they get to City of 10,000 Buddhas, if they make it, most of them do. They very, because the teachers are 
and the, the staff are good at, at weeding out kids who are not going to make it. And over the years, you know, we've been doing this since the 70s. And if they accept a kid, they know that he's got, he or she has got the stuff to make it. Um, it's only a matter of time. And often it happens in the dining room. That's where you see the change. And there will be, the, the new kid comes in, and often they're big, and you can see they're often defended. Their shoulders are hunched against all this strange weirdness, right? And they go push for the front of the line and shoulder their way to the food first and start scraping food onto their plate and sit down. They usually sit alone. And our teachers are skillful in finding these kids. It usually happens the first week or the second week. Never goes past that second week. Because if you wait and watch, the effect of the lessons of filiality and the example given by the Sangha, the faculty, and the older students. That's where the action is. The older students start to bring out something out of every single kid. Which is, if you come back in three weeks, you'll see that same big kid who was pushing his way, elbowing the others aside, especially the little ones. He has now got a little buddy with him, and he says, you want a biscuit? A little kid who can't even see over the, the serving edge goes, yeah. How many do you want? Two. Okay. What else do you want? Peas? Okay. You like bananas? Yeah. Bananas. Okay. And then they carry the tray over for the kids, set it down, then go back and get theirs. And you can see there's this openness, and they're like big-hearted, big-chested. And there's a kind of a relief because when there's principle that you get bridled for, something happens in the heart and it's a releasing and a flowing of something, connecting with suddenly you're not alone anymore. And these kids get it. It's amazing to watch. Um, there was a wonderful story uh, that I saw happen. Um, there was a Native American woman uh, her name was Bessie. And I went in, I had come back from a trip to Asia and I was passing through City of 10,000 Buddhas on my way to, to Vancouver. And I was just there for uh, the weekend and I was sitting in the office and here was Bessie. And Bessie was about, she must have been about 60 and she was as wide as she was tall. She was really, she was very short but she was very wide. You know, and just big, round face, big smiles. And uh, she was a Pomo, came from the tribe right there. And uh, she was there, and a new family came in. And the new family had their kid, and they, they, the kid had not fit in anywhere. And the family, they could see, were really concerned because they wanted this kid to make it this time, in the kind of last chance. And... Uh, so one of the teachers said, Oh, Bessie, you're here. Would you mind, do you, is it okay? Would you please tell this, these folks about Tommy? And she said, Tommy, my grandson? Yeah, Tommy. She said, Oh, I can tell you about Tommy. What do you need to know? She said. 
So they sat down with the parents and uh, the new potential kid who was, had been a behavior problem all along. So she said, oh, Tommy, Tommy. She said, let me tell you about my grandson. Well, he came here first in a summer session, and it was an experiment. I should tell you, my Tommy was just, he was the worst behaved kid anybody had ever seen. Why? He took after my son, his dad. Nobody, nobody could tame my son. He got kicked out of every school he ever went into. Tommy was just like him. I couldn't do a thing with him. And then somebody told me, they said, send your son to the Buddhists. And so I thought, well, you know, can't hurt. I never know what Buddhist is. It's if they run a good school, nobody else will take him, she said. <laughs> so she sent Tommy to the Buddhist summer camp, you know. And she said, boy, I had my fingers crossed. I had my toes crossed. I just hoped this time he would make it, she said. And so she said, you know, um, well, he, uh, he kind of he latched on to one of those monks. One of the monks liked him and just took him under his wing and kind of tamed him, she said. And she said, boy, he, you know, he went into the regular school in September. And I tell you, she said, what a change. Do you know what Tommy does now? She said, I, I raise him because my son's, my son's in jail, she said. So I raise him. I raise Tommy. And uh, she said, he comes home, and it used to be, you know, I, I would just hear the door slam, and he would come in, and he'd gone. But now he comes in, he says, Grandma, Grandma, he's, uh, what do you got for me to do, she says. She said, can I do the dishes for you? And I say, Tommy, you know I did the dishes already, but you can, uh, you can sweep. So he'll sweep, and then he says, Grandma, what, what can I do for you? And she says, Tommy, would you read to me? And he'll do it. He reads the papers to me. Before, he couldn't read. Now he shows off for his grandma, and he reads the papers for me. Why? She says, because I can't read myself, she says. Bessie was illiterate, you know, but had worked her whole life working for her family. So she says, and Tommy reads to me from the papers. That's the best part. And he reads real good, she said. So she says, I think these Buddhist schools are okay by me. She says, I tell everywhere I go, I tell people about it, she says. So Tommy was subdued by, tamed and subdued, tiaofu, that's the word right there, by what, not by a teacher, but by the principle and the example of xiaoshun, of filial respect, which, according to the principle, is inside it's in there waiting, but it has to be shown. You have to model it. You can't teach it like this. Obey me. Mm-mm. The horse will throw the bridle, will not take the bit, spit it out. But if you do it and show it, then the kid tries it, and it's just like, I didn't know that was in. That feels really good. Hmm. And you take the bridle and you're, you can go. You can go left and right, go fast, you can stop. So that's the, the power of Tiaofu when it's based on actual principle. And you can see that in these kids. So it's uh, one hand you could say you lose freedom when you put the bit between your teeth and go with it. On the other hand, 
you open up a whole world of possibilities that weren't there before. They say, they say, you know, what could be more tamed and subdued than a Buddhist monk, right? Why? So many rules. When you become a bhikshu, you've got, if you're in the Theravada tradition in Thailand, 238 precepts. That's on top of the 10 Shramanera precepts. If you're a Mahayana monk, you've got 250. Right? And then on top of that are the Bodhisattva precepts. So that's a lot of taming and subduing. But they say in the Theravada tradition, people ordain and then go back to lay life, usually two years, right? That's kind of the standard. It's a little bit like military service. They say Thai women much prefer a husband that has been a monk at some point. Why? Because he's been tamed and subdued. Right? <laughs> right? Right? He's not so wild as before. So there's principle there. Okay. Ji Jing Xin. A mind that is still and quiet. When was the last time that your mind was Ji Jing? Still and quiet. I would hope this morning in meditation. Right? Some people it's behind the wheel. Going down down the road. Rolling. We're rolling. Uh, other people do it under the redwoods. Some people say mere woods is where you meet your ji jing xin. Other people it's on a sailboat or on the water or at the coast, right? Looking out over that flat, flat, flat Pacific horizon. I had a profound moment first time I saw the Pacific Ocean because I grew up in Ohio. Get real, right? Mind you, I was in the part of Ohio that has a big, big lake connected to it, Lake Erie, Toledo. That's the northern part of Ohio. We have Lake Erie. And if you go west, you get Lake Michigan. Big, but they're not, they're not still and quiet. The wind blows those waves huge on Lake Michigan. Chicago is a windy city. So still, when I came west and saw the Pacific Ocean, it was, I was not disappointed. I'd always felt the pull to salt water growing up and never had seen it till I got to California, 1969, first time. And the Pacific Ocean really delivered. It was as big as I'd hoped. And the smell and the sounds and the feeling and the moisture, the Pacific Ocean for a landlocked Ohio kid was really the thing, boy. It opened up something inside me that I never imagined. And I had no idea then, 69, that uh, eight years later, I would be living outdoors for almost three years, never out of the sound of the surf for three years, living out not inside walls for three years with the sound of that tide to my left. I had no idea. So when, I, when I'm now in the sound of surf or the water hitting the coast, something, something changes inside me. It's a chemist, chemical thing. Chun shan xin, completely wholesome. Thoroughly wholesome. Chun is like 
no admixture. Purely good. So if you're going to enter the second ground, you want to be chun shan. Completely good. Bu za xin. Not mixed. Za is a really neat word in uh, Chinese. It's a magazine. Is a za And a za is got a mix of contents. Got a bunch of contents. It's got editorials. It's got table of contents. It's got short articles. It's got feature articles. It's got advertisements. It's got uh, classifieds. It's got pictures. It's got news. Uh, usually ends up with a joke on the back page. So that's a zhaji. That's a magazine. Mixed up. And this is bu za. It's not that way. In order to enter the second ground, you have to have a mind that is unified, purified, not mixed. So if it's not mixed, what is it? It's Ninety-nine and forty-four hundred percent ivory snow. Okay, like that. Furthermore, this is a neat one. Wu gu lian xin. Wu gu lian xin. This is a mind that is again. It's not something. The first one is not za. This is the the bu and the wu do the same thing. It means not gu lian. So gu lian here, gu means paying attention to, concerned about. Lian means that's the word that's used for being in love, like romantic love. But here it's that side of romantic love that clings. So it's a mind free of concern clinging. In other words, regret. A mind that is not looking over its shoulder. Because why? You've got to get ready. The second ground is a mind that has to focus now. Every time we regret, we are taxing mindfulness. Mindful is a really good word. That's one of our popular American Buddhist words. Mindfulness, right? Um, mindful. Your mind is fully focused. How could you play the piano if your mind was regretting something? How could you do surgery if your mind was looking back, focused on two, three, four things at once? How could you calculate your totals if your mind was occupied with something else, right? All these, how could you drive effectively if you're texting Right? Right? Your mind is stuck on the answer. Oops. Bang. So, this mind is not doing that. Wu Gu Lian. Okay? Bu Zha and Wu Gu Lian. It's focused. It's prepared. Held in balance. It's ready to respond to whatever comes up. Because it's all there. It's like an athlete waiting for the serve, right? You're receiving, it's your opponent's service, and you can go either way because they're going to serve 
with spin, without spin, with top spin, with back spin, you've got to get ready for the ball coming over the net. That's wugulian. If you're regretting, if you're looking backwards, you're going to miss it. Okay, and guang xin da xin. Guang is this way, in terms of capacity and this way, expans expansiveness, volume. And da is three dimensions. Da is just big, huge. It's big this way, it's big that way, and it's big this way. Da. So, in order to enter the second ground, your mind has to be guang, and it has to be da. Vast and great. Vast and big. Guang is expansive here. But you, Guang I always think of as kind of horizontal. Going that way. Pusa The Bodhisattva takes these ten profound states of mind as he or she gets ready to enter the second ground. Okay. Neat. So, that's the plowing that was done. That's the preparation. Um, when I first caught on that every one of the grounds, second, third, fourth, up to tenth, starts with these ten, with a ten, a bunch of ten, and they're different every time, I, I skipped ahead and I like combed out the ten to see what the flavor was. Because um, when I first really looked at the ten grounds, I was bowing. Um, I, we had Marty and I, as we bowed up the California coast, had just three books in the car only. This is one of them. So we had nothing to distract us. And so I picked up the Avatamsaka Sutra as literature just to, because I was a grad student. I was used to reading six books at a time, right? Stacked up, open, six, you know, swapping. Grad students have to do that, you know. And never mind magazines and newspapers. So um, here we had one book. So I skipped ahead to see what are the ten, what are the next ten shim, the next ten states of mind. And it never disappointed because each one had a flavor. But these ten, what do you do with them? Um, I'm going to suggest that take take one a day for fun, if you're curious, if you want to try it out. Take one of these profound states of mind and walk with it for a day. Make it your state of mind for a day or an hour or in a conversation. For example, say, okay, today I'm going to be junger. I'm going to be standard, stable, solid, reliable, straight. And I'm going to get to where I'm going by the most direct route. The is not a single wasted trajectory. You're going there. Okay? If you needed to get to Oakland, would you go down to the freeway because it's faster or would you go directly along Martin Luther King? You, depends. You know, if, you, if it was you say direct distance or direct time, you could choose because we have choices. But if you want to get from here to the bathroom and you're in a hurry, 
you know how to get there directly, right? You don't go upstairs first and back down to the bathroom. You go to the bathroom, you know, directly. That's Do that one day. Take that profound state of mind. Do that for a day. Next day, I'm going to be like this. Just completely with a form, but pliant. Think of water. That's what I'm going to be today, especially when I talk to my spouse, right? to my husband, to my wife. I'm going to be soft as a rose petal. <laughs> You'll shock her. <laughs> she, is this you? you know. No. But try it. Imagine having that profound state of mind for a day. Then, next, kannam, capable. Can you do it? Yes, we can. Right? Until the Republicans do what they do. Then we can't. So uh, then the next day I'm going to be tiaofu. I'm going to be tuned and subdued and tamed and adjusted. I'm going to be in harmony. That's unison. That's not even harmony. That's unison, right? Only when it's tiaofu does it sound nice like that. So take one on, take a month per day, right? See, see what it would be like to spend a day with that profound state of mind. And then imagine all ten. The Bodhisattva has been preparing and preparing with these ten in order to get the second ground, the second stage ready. Okay, there we go. Any feedback, comments, questions? Anybody online who would like to type in a question? to our faithful webcast engineers who are here tonight? Kenny and Michael? Okay, but in case anybody does, you can... There is a question. Yes? No questions. Okay. So, in case there is, people can use... We're using Ustream now. Ustream, we stream, we all stream for Ustream. Ustream is, allows you to... to Type in a chat question, so don't hesitate. We will respond. Somebody's coming in. What were the last three grounds? We've only got two. The last three shins, the last three attitudes of mind, maybe. Okay. One was no regret. Free of regret, it says. A mind free of regret. An expansive mind and a big mind. Was that the question? Because we just did ten states of mind. Chances are that's what they want. Not grounds. Because they're only on the second ground. There isn't three so far. Is that, is that close? You can ask them back. So we've had ten states of mind. What are they? Proper upright compliant, yielding, able to endure, tamed and subdued, still and quiet, completely good, free of confusion, free of regret, expansive and big. Okay, does that, does that help? Okay. And through these ten states of mind, the Bodhisattva reaches the second ground 
Now, Ligo Di. Li means leaving behind. We're out of here. <laughs> I remember, I'll never ever forget this. There is a Buddhist scholar named Professor Edward Konza, Dr. Konza. Dr. Konza was infamous. Not only famous, he was infamous because he was a rascal. And he loved being a rascal. He prided himself in being irascible. He would always do things just to be naughty. He loved being naughty. He was a British scholar, distinguished, translator, publisher. He just wanted to be naughty. And he made it. He succeeded in being naughty. Um, anyway, Dr. Konza, C-O-N-Z-E. Dr. Konza was here for two years, and I, I was his neighbor, and so I got a chance to drive him around a lot because I had a pickup truck, and Dr. Konza needed driving around. So uh, one day, Dr. Konza said, Ah, uh, uh, these Americans, <laughs> Americans, yes. I've been studying them for years, he said. I understand Americans. I understand them very well. The American ethos. I'll give it to you. One sentence. Let's get out of here. That's it. He said. That's the entire American ethos. He sums it up in a single sentence. Let's get out of here. They put wheels on everything. Wheels. They go. They just go. He said. Americans put wheels on everything and away we go. So it's true. From the point of view of a British scholar, Americans say, let's get out of here. Luckily, we had, across the last century, enough territory that we could get out of here, right? Unfortunately, we run out of territory. So we go to borrow other people's countries to get out of here, you know. But <laughs> that's our oil under your sand. So never mind. So uh, that's what he said. So li is get out of Let's get out of here. When you li something, you leave it behind. So what do you li? What are you getting out of? Go. What is go? Chinese word go. It's translated in a variety of ways with compounds, including dust, like dust on your tabletop, stain. Soil, go, go. Dirt, meaning something you wash off. It can even mean filth, something that includes obscenity. You know, filth like that kind of obscenity. This is filthy. But it also means, we, we could translate that word as what? It's got a variety of translations. Stain, dirt, impurity, filth, defilement, all these different words to refer to that uh, quality of something you want to wash. And so how do you translate that in a sacred text? This is a Buddha Sutra. Did the Buddha mean getting rid of filth? That, that's got funny resonance in, in English. So as we translated it, we left it as dust. And dust has got a lot of interesting associations. 
if you want to leave dust behind, you brush it off. You blow it off. You wipe it clean. Implying what? Returning to purity. Some people would translate it as stain. Stain can't wash it out. And in the Buddha's vision, you can always go back to purity. You cultivate. You wash it off. You brush it clean. At all times, wipe it clean. Where could dust delight? Said the sixth patriarch, right? So dust is a really good translation and you leave it behind. In other words, you cleanse it. You wipe it free. You return to purity. So uh, we're talking about the nature, our nature. Like the kid who comes into school, get out of my way, right? And then after he is in the environment of filiality, it's, ah, can I give you a hand? Can I help little ones? Right? So that's the ego, leaving the dust behind. So that was our choice for, for uh, translating the ego di, and it's the stage where you leave the dust behind. And it's a work in progress. We're certainly open to other people's suggestions for how to translate the ego di. Comments or questions? Kevin. What is the significance of the difference between an expansive mind and a great mind? Um, those guangda, guangda is often put together as one thing, right? Wow, that's Beijing guangda. All right, here it's separated. They're two separate minds, and guangda returns in later D. So this is a this is a kind of mind that the Bodhisattva often uh, puts on. This is the attitude the Bodhisattva picks up. So what I get out of that, the question was, what's the significance of the last two, expansive and big? What I... What's the significance of the difference? The difference between them, okay. Um, the sutra points out they're different, so I'm assuming there is a difference. What I get from that Remember, I explained that one is, I always think of it as kind of horizontal, expansive this way. The opposite of that would be, and if your attitude is exclusive and narrow, only one, that's not the Bodhisattva's mind. When I have da, I think of cubic. This, that, and that. So that's, that's my best. One would be squared, one would be cubed. All right? So I think, you know. Um, when you see something big, how do you encounter it? Like Empire State Building, you know, Patronus Towers, downtown Kuala Lumpur, Taipei 101, Ealing E, you know, it's like, oh, that's big. But expansive is Grand Canyon because you, you can't fill it up, you know. That's that's it's Grand Canyon's big, but it's capacity. So Guang is capacity, Da is size. Okay. All right. You could say one is this, one is this. So that's what I do with it. Okay.
If you will with me look at the next paragraph, it's about killing. We're done. It's nine o'clock. But I just want to point you ahead because I prepared some songs and stories based on our getting to that next paragraph. Guess what? We didn't get there. So all my illustrations are for a passage we didn't lecture. Pretty funny. Um, but I'd want to preview it and tell you what's coming up because because the um, here is when we actually start the the uh, broccoli and tofu of this chapter. Not the meat and potatoes, but the broccoli and tofu. We get to the meat and potatoes of this chapter now, which is what? Ten evil deeds that the bodhisattva doesn't do. And because he or she doesn't do them, they become the ten good deeds. And they are the familiar, if, you've, if you know any of the Buddhist lists, one of the first ones you meet is three evils with the body, three evils with the mind, four evils with the mouth, coming up with ten evils altogether. And of those, killing, stealing, and sexual misconduct, or lust, are one, two, and three. First one, killing. Who agrees? Ten commandments. Moses, bringing the Decalogue down from Mount Sinai, agrees. Killing, not a good thing to do. Who else? Every ethical text, from the Quran to the Vedas, the Upanishads, the Mahabharata, all the sacred texts of the world say, number one thing is give creatures their lives. That's where we're going. So it's really, really powerful. Powerful section of text. And this is one that I've studied a whole bunch. Because um, where does this, where are the ramifications of this? One is, one is, Armies, when they go to war, what do they do? First thing they do is make sure God's on their side. Right? Which is really funny, because what about when both sides of an army, both sides of a war, enter combat, sure that God's on their side? Contradiction. How can that be? Somebody's got to lose, right? Unless it's modern warfare where everybody loses. Mostly civilians. So if you're mostly killing civilians, called collateral damage, where's God? Whose side was he on? Uh, problem, huh? Right. So I taught an entire class at Graduate Theological um, with the idea being that we wanted to look into the question of whose side is God on when you go to war? Interesting. So the whole question of killing immediately puts us into conversation with the prophets of every religion. Everyone loves their life. And you would hope that God would be on our side. Like Bob Dylan says, God's on our side. He'll stop the next war. He said. Okay, so let us dedicate merit now, okay? And we will move on.
you know how to do it, make a wish, send out your thoughts like a radio beacon to connect with other wholesome thoughts however you would like to leave the world better. Well, we have something in that regard to celebrate because the uh, our president, bless his heart, kept his promise to pull combatants out of Iraq. And... I saw pictures of the the wives and kids and moms and dads celebrating as sons and daughters returned. But I'm mindful that there are 50,000 Americans left combat ready 
and also contractors. Mercenaries. So you go, we're done and we're out of there, but 50,000 are still there. Hmm. Is that spin and PR, or is it true? Funny, I don't know. I don't know the answer. But I, I read that today, that there are still 50,000 Americans still in Iraq. So, we hope that they're there peacefully. Maybe doing nation building. Let's hope so. Not not under contract to kill. Hope so. So, that is worth celebrating, certainly. And let's hope he doesn't stop there. We were in two land wars. Do you feel like a country at war? Not particularly, because why? The drones fight for us, right? We have our machines fighting for us. But we are in two, count them, two wars. So how funny that we kind of do war when we're not uh, wondering whether Lindsay Lohan's out of jail yet, you know, and whether so-and-so is, which celebrity's pregnant, and whether... with celebrity trivia when we're a nation at war. If you're at war, you should be planning victory gardens and just, you know, anyway. So funny how we do war these days. He's five foot two and he's six feet four. He fights with missiles and with spears. He's all of 31 and he's only 17. He's been a soldier for a thousand years. He's a Catholic, a Protestant, an atheist, a Jain, a Buddhist and a Baptist and a Jew. And he knows he shouldn't kill, and he knows he always will. Kill you, my friend, for me and me for you. He's fighting for the Reds. He says it's for the peace of all. He's the one who must decide who's to live and who's to die. And he never sees the writing on the wall. Hitler have condemned us at Dachau. 
Without him, Caesar would have stood alone. He's the one who gives his body as a weapon of the war. And without him, all this killing can't go on. Yes, he's the universal soldier, and he really is to blame. His orders come from far away no more. They come from him and you and me, and people, can't you see? This is not the way we put an end to war. from the son of a decorated war hero. That's me. Mind you, uh, Master Shrenhua said, you can't live without an army. Nations need armies. But those armies need direction. Where does it come from? Okay. Interesting topic, boy, oh boy, and a hot one, since we just ended one of our two wars. So, I promised some advice. Boy, we have lots of advice, and there is an expert here tonight among us, someone who is perfectly willing to put his reputation on the line to make sure that we get set straight. And I'm talking about Grandpa Yeye. Hi everybody. I'm sure you didn't you weren't aware that I have advanced degrees from prestigious institutions. Uh, I put on my glasses tonight uh, so you call me here. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Thank you, thank you. I put on my glasses to uh, give you the impression of, of uh, mm, the qualifications. They're contact lenses. You can't see them, but uh, I'm I'm here tonight. Uh, I didn't wear my mortar board, but I'm here in my uh, role as. Uh, uh, the advisor to tell you things that I hope will help. Are you ready to listen? They're not saying anything. That's all right. Just, just ask them. Are you ready to listen? Yeah. All right. All right. All right. Here it comes. All right. Now, uh, I'm sure all of you. Now, this is going to be kind of deep, so you might want to take notes. All right. I'm sure you're aware of the dissolution of the status quo. Yes, we're all aware of that, right? 2008. After that, right? The security of daily life evaporated before our eyes with the banks. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're here. Oh, oh well, want to help me out? All right, there we go. Ah, all right, yeah. I want everybody to see you out there. Thank you very much. Uh, security disappeared, right? You're all feeling a little nervous. Maybe job insecurity, environmental insecurity, right? Lots of lots of nerves, nervousness. Me too, but uh, I got courage. Courage. <laughs> Courage. And I'm here to give you some courage. Pep talk. You all need a pep talk. All right. So not very many of us are equipped to handle the demise of the structures that we saw, the systems that organize our daily life. You know, our response to the evaporation of security and the fear about, you know, just uh, terror, that, that could be like grief. We have to cope with it, kind of like grief. It takes a long time to find solid ground and how to orient yourself to the new order. So you need some advice. That's why I'm here. It's all right, it's all right. You can send me an email, or you can check my Facebook page, like my Facebook. That's all right, you don't have to pay me. He gives me food, that's all I need. 
Why? That's my job. Courage. All right. So here's what we got to do. We got to learn to handle our greed, folks. One thing for sure, we have no ability to handle greed. What's greed? What's need? Who knows? Nobody knows. Nobody shows us. No models. So that's one thing. Learn to handle your greed. I ask myself the question every morning, how much is enough? How much? How much? Of course, I get the lion's share. Oh, that's a little lion joke, you know, but that's okay. That's, that's enough. That's all I need is a lion's share. So, you know. Now, the other thing, the other thing. Our life has gotten polarized. Polarized. Kind of like a poison. Every aspect. Broadcast, hate-mongering, fear, ignorance. You can see it in Congress, right? Stubborn ideology overrides efforts towards common good and decency, right? I told you it's going to get deep tonight. That's all right. That's all right. You could use a good pep talk. All right. So it's really easy to be divisive. It's hard to be unified, right? It's more attractive to blame people than to find a solution, right? You've got a lot of negativity out there. Hard to believe in anybody or anything. The worst consequence of all this poison is what? You going to tell them? Yeah. Are they ready? Yeah. Okay. The worst consequence of all the poison, you lose hope that you can ever work together again. Am I right? They're not saying anything. Am I right? Have you lost hope you can work together? I think they have. You go ahead. All right. They're really polarized. All right. All right. I'll tell them anyway. Okay. You have to believe that we can work together, find a way out of our troubles. We can move forward if we can find a way to heal the poison of the polarization. That's what we got to do. It's not right and wrong, black and white. The world changes one heart at a time. If we work together for positive, compassionate, and inclusive change, we will eventually restore our sanity. That's pretty profound. Well, what do you expect? Hmm. I'm, they're paying attention to me. It's a sutra lecture. I've got to go deep. Yeah, I didn't realize you were thinking all that stuff up there. Yeah, boy, I'm impressed. Well, that's all right. I hope they were taking notes. Right. Okay, so there you go. Need or greed? No more polarization. Work together. Compassion. Positive, inclusive change. We'll make it. Don't lose hope that we can solve our problems. There you go. Well, thanks a lot. Good night. Good night, everybody. Now, what do they say in Buddhism? Amitabha. Right? Right? Yeah. Amitabha. Okay, there you go. Thanks, you. Good night, everybody.